and good evening. Welcome. This is Doug Taylor. Welcome to the Proverbs class on Noahide Nations. Great to have you with us. Uh, tonight we are starting with Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18. Again, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18. And as we've discussed in the past, our methodology uh, is that we want to first identify all the questions that surround a verse and then we'll try to find answers to them. Oftentimes we jump right into wanting to analyze, well, what does this mean, what does that mean? Uh, and we need to, to get the questions out on the table first. First of all, because that helps us to know all the things we have to look at. Uh, and second, it teaches us the methodology of uh, asking questions. So again, we are on Book of Proverbs, chapter 10 and verse 18. And it reads, he who covers hatred is lying lips, and he who brings out his anger is a fool. He who covers hatred is lying lips, and he who brings out his anger is a fool. So, the first question would be, what are the questions? In terms of understanding what this means, what questions do we need to ask, and what questions come to mind when we read it? He who covers hatred is lying lips, and he who brings out his anger is a fool. What do you think? Is the verse very obvious? Are we 100% clear about what it says? He who covers hatred is lying lips, and he who brings out his anger is a fool. Okay, so Kathleen's saying yes, it's clear. Uh, so let me ask a couple of questions. The first part says, he who covers hatred. Well, what does it mean to cover hatred? I mean, we would have to understand what, what that means. And then when it says, he who covers hatred is lying lips, well, what does that mean altogether? And then, in the second half, what does it mean to bring out your anger? So it's because it says, he who brings out his anger is a fool. What does it mean to bring it out? And, what else is there to do with anger? And why is a person who brings out his anger called a fool? And then we go a step further and say, well, what's the subject here? I mean, on the one half, it seems like in the first half we're talking about hatred, and the second half we're talking about anger. It sounds like two negatives. So what is the whole subject, and what is King Solomon trying to get across to us in this? Okay, and uh, Kathleen, you wrote Stuff It Away, so I assume that means uh, you, you were answering the question, what does it mean uh, about covering hatred? What does that mean, we stuff it away? Okay, uh, and Pamela, you wrote a pretense, okay, and that uh, in bringing out anger, uh, Pamela, you've mentioned exploding, okay, person's not in control, and Pamela, very good point, depends on what one hates, 
okay? So, and I, I, I need to preface this by telling you that, that virtually all the ideas and the learning that I've gotten in this subject I've gotten from my mentor uh, and friend Rabbi Morton Moskowitz. Uh, so, let me suggest to you that the subject of the verse is anger. And that the verse is talking about two ways that people are dealing with anger, two different outlets. So, what's the difference? So we could suggest that in the first half, it's lying lips because even when the person that the verse is referring to, the he, is talking nicely to the other person, He's actually lying because he's harboring some kind of hatred about the other guy on the inside. And he's only being nice for social reasons or for, who knows, maybe some, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, words escaping me, but subversive type of reason. Okay, so he really feels hatred toward the guy, but he's covering it up. So essentially, and he's being really nice, but essentially he's lying. Okay, now, in this case, however, in reality, the guy would be kind of a fool because he's the only one who's really suffering. If you think about it, you've got person A is mad or, or hates person B. So person A encounters person B and is all nicey-nice to him, okay? But inside he's just like, oh, I'd really like to get that guy. But he's, he's squelching it all inside of him. So who's suffering? B, he's just fine. But person A, he's the one who's suffering because he's got all this, um, this hatred. So in that scenario, nobody's suffering except him. So we'd suggest, well, that's pretty foolish of him because... He's basically harming himself. Okay, and Kathleen, thank you. Ulterior motives. That's, yeah, that's the, the, the sense that I was thinking of. Now, a second possibility is that person A is lying and acting nice to person B so he can take vengeance against B. In other words, he's covering it up so that he can wait and get his revenge on B for whatever B did to him or whatever he thinks B did to him. So that would take care of the first half. Either he's just stuffing it in and he's suffering or he's doing it on purpose because uh, he plans to take vengeance and he's just waiting for his opportunity. Okay? So in the second half the person explodes. He screams, he yells, he just lets the other person have it. So A's mad at B and A just completely comes unglued at him and tells B off. Well, why is he a fool? So let me pause and ask that question. If he just comes out with it, and that's what it's talking about, he who brings out his anger is a fool, why would he be a fool to do that? What do you think? 
Person A is angry at person B and so just explodes at him. Why would he be foolish to do that? I mean, it seems like, well, he'd get it out, you know, get it out of his system. Maybe that makes him feel better. What would be the foolishness of doing that? Okay, Kathleen, yeah, when you get to that point, you've allowed that to enslave you. That's true. I mean, if, you've got, if you're letting your anger control you, then you've lost control of yourself and you're letting your emotions uh, run your life. That's point. And Diane, good, we need to learn to control our temper. Yes, that, that is true. And for the same reason, when you're, when you're operating completely out of your emotions, you're completely out of intellectual control. You know, you hear about these things about road rage. Uh, I heard one years ago where a guy was angry about what some other guy uh, did to him on the road, and, and somehow they were stopped, and the guy that was mad got out and killed the other guy and went to prison for, like, I don't know, 23, 27 years, something like that. I thought, now, you gave up, like, 23, 27 years of your life over a little split instant of anger? I mean, I'm sure sitting in prison, the guy didn't feel all that time like, yeah, it was really worth it. <clears throat> but when you're in an angry situation, you're completely, or you you can be, completely out of control. So, yeah, it's very self-oriented uh, and not thinking about the bigger picture. But even in the context of somebody who's really angry with someone... The reason that I would suggest he's a fool is because now the other person knows to be wary and careful of that person. Now B knows that A is an enemy. And we don't know that we need to be careful of somebody if they're not an enemy, but we do need we do know to be careful of someone who is. So if I know that somebody is angry at me, then I know to protect myself. And so the other person, in the context of his anger, is not going to be able to, uh, you know, take out any revenge or action or whatever on me. So if he's angry and his real purpose is to somehow take some action against me, he's foolish to let me know that because he's already forewarned me. Welcome back, Eva. So what what we're showing here is that there are two ways for an enemy to react to you. And we're talking about an enemy, but we're talking here about someone who hates you. And the intelligent person will know how to deal with the person in the second half of the verse. But even the intelligent person will not know that he's dealing with an enemy if the enemy acts according to the first half of the verse. So if the enemy continues to be nice to me and I have no warning, then... I'm set up, but if the person comes right out with it, then I can protect myself. So the person in the first half will get consequences in other ways, as we've discussed and you, uh, several of you alluded to, uh, and we'll hopefully discuss that more in some other verses as well. Uh, but the intelligent person can be hurt by the person in the first half of the verse because he's unprepared for it. But if the person shows his anger, as in the second half of the verse, then he'll know how to deal with it. So the verse is about dealing with someone else who is angry, not about dealing with your own anger. It's about dealing with another person 
uh, that's angry. And so, Kathleen, you've, you've asked the question, what if it's the reverse? I'm not sure. Can you elaborate? By reverse, do you mean what if I'm angry? I need just a little bit more detail to know. Okay, so what if I'm angry? Um, then I would suggest that the very first thing, if you know you're angry, is to the degree possible, step away from the situation and do not take any action. Because it's very possible that when you're angry, you will take action that you will regret later and you will have to go clean up the mess. So if you're angry, then the first step is self-awareness to realize, yep, I'm angry. And then it's to resolve, I'm not going to do anything while I'm angry. Let's say I'm, I'm uh, angry at one of my coworkers. Then, uh, and, and my temptation, and I've had this, is to blast out an email to them, you know, and say, why in the world did you do da-da-da-da-da? And then I stop and I realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, emails can be forwarded and read by dozens and hundreds of people. Second of all, it can easily be misconstrued. Third, if you do that, you're going to create a problem and you're going to have to go clean it up. And I don't like to have to go back and clean up messes like that. And so I'll just step away, even, even to the point of, you know, getting up and leaving the room if I need to, or leaving the situation. Go out, get some fresh air, go get a cup of coffee, go for a walk. Uh, something to extricate myself until I can calm down and look at the situation rationally. Uh, there is an interesting story told years ago uh, about a, um, a senior executive meeting with a bunch of executives in some boardroom and the argument was, the discussion they were having was getting rather heated and all of a sudden one of them got up and walked over and laid down on a couch that was in the room. And somebody said to him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm starting to get angry. And I have found that it's very difficult to get angry when I'm lying down. And so he recognized right in that situation, I'm moving it into an angry space, which is not going to be good. And I know from my own personal experience that it's tough for me to get angry when I'm lying down. So I'm going to go lay down. <clears throat> and just by, my, if my recollection is correct, the sheer fact that he did that and verbalized it um, is uh, broke the ice in the room, and, and people, you know, it brought brought the tension back down. Um, and Eva, you've written, I've been told to close the door but not lock it. I, I'm not sure if that's literal or figurative, but I think they're both correct. Uh, there's a time to to get out of the situation. And what I would be tempted to do, particularly if you're in a close-in encounter with, with another individual, uh, is to say, you know what, I, I really need to take some distance on this right now, and I'll have to talk with you about it later. And, and you know, get out of the situation. Uh, leave the room or do something, because you're almost certain to make mistakes when you're operating from anger. Uh, and so the, the most rational thing you can do is to recognize it and then take steps to remove yourself from the situation until you can calm down and look at the situation more rationally and say, uh, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's actually happening uh, and make a more measured analysis of it.
There we go. I'm not sure what just happened there. Um, somehow it logged me off and logged me back on again without my realizing it. Uh, but in, in summary, I think the best thing you can do is to remove yourself from the situation, tell someone, look, I, I need to have some space before I can talk to you about this further. Uh, I'll get back to you and, you know, uh, call them back later, get out of the room, whatever it might be. Give yourself some time and space to calm down and then analyze the situation and say, okay, what's the best way to, uh, to, to deal with that? Um, and it may be that when you go back and talk with someone and they say, well, why did you leave the room? Uh, you know, with, with certain people, I might be very direct and say, you know, because I was getting angry and I have found from experience that if I get angry, uh, I'm not going to make the best decisions and I didn't feel like that was a very productive place to be and I needed to get some distance and deal with my own anger first. Um, so, um, Kathleen, am I answering your question? Okay, good. Um, as a corollary to this, uh, and uh, maybe you said in Psalms says that when I speak, they are when I speak, they are for war. I'm not sure of the psalm or the context there, so um, I'd have to go take a look at, is that one, I'd have to take a look at that one, that's not one that I'm familiar with right off, uh, right off the top of my head. Um, as a corollary to this, we want to show that the only possibility of success is where you use thought or wisdom. And in the first half of this verse, we're talking about an evil person, or, or someone who's, who's, you know, holding on to hatred, who is using thought in order to be successful. Because you'll notice that, I mean, obviously, insofar as he's being a liar, there are going to be other consequences. But we see that the evil person who thinks will be more successful than someone who doesn't think, as in the person that's described in the second half of the verse. In other words, the, you've got two people who are angry, but the one in the second half of the verse isn't thinking, they're just blurting out what they're feeling. The one in the first half, he who covers hatred is lying lips, um, he's at least using thought and saying, hmm, I'm going to be nicey-nice to this guy until I can get my revenge on him. Now, I'm not saying revenge is a positive thing, but the guy within the context of his sort of evil design is using thought and therefore he will be more successful than the one in the second half. I mean, if you look at evil people who have really done terrible things in the history of the world, I mean, some of them were very smart. They're very intelligent. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, Hitler was not an idiot. He knew how to manipulate people and control people and do certain things and slip in and, and be slippery certain ways and so forth. So, I mean, in a context of, of evil design, he was using thought. Um, so, what we want to say is that, the, that success only comes through thought. Now, the ultimate wisdom here would be that if the first person sees the harm in the lying and, uh, and then takes steps to, to uh, uh, better himself, but if a person has just a little bit of wisdom, 
one can still be successful to a degree uh, in his evil plans. Uh, and, and again, that may be the only way that an evil person can be successful, that is through thought, because if they do something really stupid, everybody sees that and immediately they get consequences. Therefore, and this is the important conclusion to this part, it's dangerous to teach an evil person knowledge because it may only help him in his evil. So sometimes, uh, you know, people won't teach someone something because they may, a, a very skilled teacher, uh, say a rabbi or someone, a Torah scholar, may recognize, oh, this person's character is not quite right. I have to be very careful what I teach them because if I teach them, you know, real ideas and how to be successful, they may use that knowledge to go do evil things. So, Diane, you, you raised the question, refusing to fight over an inheritance and walking away is proper. That's a very difficult question, uh, and I don't know if we can make a general case around it, uh, because I don't know the circumstances, what's at stake, uh, what, what the specifics are. But, um, it, I mean, on the one hand, <laughs> You, um, you can't let necessarily let people walk all over you, uh, and I'm not talking about an inheritance situation specifically, but just in general. Um, you know, if someone comes up and wants to pick a fight with you, uh, there are ways to try to uh, get to peace with that person. But there are people for whom that will not be successful, and that you may have to uh, take defensive actions with. You might even be in a situation where you have to take offensive actions with them. So it all depends on the circumstances and uh, uh, the, the situation. Uh, certainly, within the Torah context, uh, the idea of peace is a very high thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, a person should always roll over and play dead, uh, so to speak. So, um, <laughs> ah, yeah, Eva, a friend said, being of sound mind, I spend it all. Um, that's, that is true. Um, and it is nice, Kathleen, to have, have peace with other people. And working on the kinds of character traits and the way to relate to people uh, that produces peace uh, I believe is a very, uh, very laudable thing. Um, most everyone, uh, well, I would say most people uh, probably do want to have uh, peaceful relationships with other people. Um, and so there are a lot of times when, uh, uh, you know, I would, uh, a person could go out of their way to, uh, uh, to create peace. For example, I mean, to take a simple thing, uh, two of you walk up to the bank teller line at exactly the same moment. And so, you know, why don't I just motion to the other person and say, why don't you go first? Um, but that's a lot different than uh, if someone comes along and wants to take my house and my car and my children. Uh, and so I, I'm not going to think to myself, well, I guess to have peace, I'll go ahead and let them take all that. 
so it all depends on the situation and you have to look at each one uh, differently. And Eva, uh, it is true, we can avoid conflicts like the plague. Uh, to the degree that we can, it is great to avoid conflicts. And that is one of the things that uh, we'll learn in our study of the book of Proverbs. Because Proverbs teaches us a lot about uh, people and how to have relationships. And to the degree that you can, you want to have peaceful relationships with people and not have enemies, because enemies you have to watch out for. Uh, and different people have different hot buttons, uh, and so it pays to understand uh, what their hot buttons are. Um, if, um, uh, if I were, let's say, um, working with a particular individual, and uh, people called him, uh, let's say his name was Tom, but everybody called him Tommy, or a bunch of people did, and he, he muttered once, I hate it when people call me Tommy. Okay, there's a clue. Doesn't matter what everybody else does, I'll call him Tom. Now, why would I want to create you know any kind of conflict when I can see an easy way to avoid it? Um, so, yes, we want to avoid conflicts uh, as, as much as possible. Okay, any questions about that verse? He who covers hatred is lying lips, and he who brings out his anger is fool. Okay, let's move on. We are now at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. And the verse reads, With many words, or a lot of words, you will not stop from sinning. And he who controls his lips is a thinker. With a lot of words you will not stop from sinning. And he who controls his lips is a thinker. Okay? What are the questions? Remember, we're trying to ask questions first, and then we'll tackle which ones to try to, how to answer them. With many words, or a lot of words, you will not stop from sinning. And he who controls his lips is a thinker. Okay, Pamela Good, is this about a babbler? Yeah. What's it mean? What does it mean? A lot of words. What, what does that mean? Okay, and Kathleen, sounds like listening is the lesson. Well, maybe. We'll we'll see. We'll see. Let's uh We'll have to tackle each part at a time here. So, panelists started us off with a good question. Is this about a babbler? In other words, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing your question, what does it mean a lot of words? You've suggested is that a gossiper. Uh, I mean, the verse is saying a lot of words. So a, a person, somehow it's someone who's talking a lot. Uh, and what they're saying yet, we haven't figured out. But at least we know they're talking a lot. And it's saying... No, I just got knocked off again. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay, good. It seems to be happening about every 15 minutes. Um, 
So, what does it mean a lot of words? I mean, one could speak many words of Torah, and it wouldn't mean that he was sinning. So we have to figure out what is King Solomon referring to here. It can't just be any any lots of words, because there could be lots of words that are good. We go and listen to, to Shirim from great rabbis, and they use a lot of words, and that's a great thing. So that's first question. What does this lot of words mean? Another question, how is it that, that many words will not stop you from sinning? That's kind of an odd phraseology. With many words, you will not stop from sinning. And further, why doesn't it just say that with a lot of words you'll sin? Why does it use the double negative? You will not stop from sinning. Okay? And Eva, you've said, okay, talkative, gift of gab, all right. Good. On the second half, what's it mean to control one's lips? I mean, that sounds good, but what specifically does that tell us about how we should operate our life? I mean, that phrase sounds very good. Oh, a person should control his tongue. We'll control it how? What should I say? What should I not say? Um, and why is it that a person who controls his lips is considered a thinker? I mean, you don't have to be a thinker to control your lips. You know, a person could just be shy or not talk a lot. So what's that about? And interestingly, in the verse we just did, we talked about a person who covers his hatred is lying lips. Now we're talking about someone who controls his lips is a thinker. So what's the difference between these? Okay. And Diane, you're suggesting a person uh, control his lips is a person that chose their words carefully. Okay, good. Good. I think we're going to find that's uh, a big part of that. And Kathleen, you've said words can be just as damaging as, as physical abuse. I would agree with that. Uh, words, the gift of speech, like so many things we have, is a double-edged sword. And you can use it for good, you can use it for destruction. Um, okay. And Pamela, yes, it says that even if a fool keeps quiet, he will be thought wise. In fact, I don't... I can't remember where I heard this saying, but it's, it is it is better to be silent and thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. So, okay, and Diane, are you not able to hear? So, Diane, if you can respond and let me know. Okay, Kathleen sound. Diane, if yours is off and on, it may be a connection on your end because I'm not I'm getting that other people are hearing. So you might check your speaker connection uh, just to see if it's um, thoroughly in. And I see we lost Diane, so we'll uh, should probably be back in a minute. Well, let's continue on. Um, one possibility is that insofar as a thinker is concerned, he thinks about his thoughts. He doesn't just come with whatever's on his mind, but that doesn't really help me if I don't have a guide as to what to think. So if I just think about my own thinking, I could become neurotic. So I'm going to suggest that this is not just about watching. 
Um, I need to know what I'm watching for. So let's look at that first half, and it says, With many words you will not stop from sinning. And Diane, are you back to be able to, do you have sound now? Great, thank you. So what type of sin would a person commit by speaking a lot of words? In other words, how does the quantity of words make a person sin? Any thoughts about that? Quantity of words. What type of sin would a person commit by speaking a lot of words? Okay, let me give you a minute to, looks like a number of people are writing suggestions. Okay, Ken, another can't get in a word edgewise. Okay, that's true. An excessive talk causes transgression. Diane, that's a good point. What kind of transgression does it cause? I think that's what we're searching for here. What kind of transgression would it cause? Okay, Pamela, good. Endless small talk or Lashon Hurrah. Yep, when we get going, okay, sometimes we can go into Lashon Hurrah or gossip quite easily. So let me suggest that if we're telling over an idea, there's a certain amount of information that we have to give in order to tell over that idea. Okay, I'm, I'm sharing something with someone. It takes a certain amount of words to get there. But once I go beyond that, where are all of those other words coming from? Because there's no rational reason I need to keep talking. I told over the idea. I mean, let's say I'm just arbitrarily making this up, but let's say that it takes 100 words to get an idea across or tell something to someone. But I'm taking 200 words. Well, why is that? And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to suggest that if it's not coming from a rational place, then it has to be coming from an unconscious part of the human. Some people just like to talk. And even if they aren't talking about gossip or something that is sinful, there are people who will just keep rambling on and on and on. And what he's suggesting is that it must be coming from that person's unconscious. And that could be why the verse is saying doesn't, that the person doesn't stop from sinning, rather than that it says the person is sinning. Why? Because his intention is not to sin. He's not talking gossip or lies or exaggeration or whatever. He's just rambling on, but, but if he's just rambling on even without the intention, then we're suggesting it's impossible not to sin. Why? Because once you give the unconscious its freedom, then that is the area of sin. The sages say that a person is born wild. And as we've discussed, um, I think last week, the emotions are evil. Now, not in the, not in the classic sense that we think of evil, but evil in the sense of ignorance. That they, the emotions don't allow us to see reality or they cloud our view of reality uh, and 
push us into seeing reality incorrectly. Um, so, and the emotions get a head start on the human being. They are operating from, you know, the time a person is born. But a person doesn't start developing his intellect until about the age of 13. So the emotions essentially have about a 13-year head start on a person. Now, if I'm rambling on with no negative intent, then it must be coming from my unconscious, which is an emotional part of me. Now, if it's coming from there, then it's impossible that I'm not going to say something incorrect you know, even if I'm in probably in the world of Torah, because why would I give over more than the student needs if no more clarification is needed? Once I've gone beyond the point of what is rationally needed, then I'm not being dictated by my mind, by what's rationally necessary, but I'm being dictated to by my emotions. And once I'm dictated to by my emotions, that's where the danger comes, because wherever the emotions have control, it's uh, impossible, or at least probably very difficult, and I, I uh, depending on how we, we define this, not to sin. So, for example, you ever notice that uh, if you're with a group of people, and a person tells a joke, and then somebody else tells a joke, and so then the group shifts into the mode of joke-telling, and somebody else tells a joke, somebody else tells a joke, and once that process starts, it's highly likely that someone will tell an off-color joke. Because once the emotions are let go, they always tend to go too far. Okay? And a similar thing can happen when people are talking, and then the conversation starts to slip into gossip. One person says something, and another person says something, and then pretty soon the group is caught up in it. And it all, of course, seems very innocent. You know, after all, no one's punching someone else or doing anything like that. You know, it's just words, right? You know, people don't think they're doing anything with words. But, in fact, it's very, very hurtful and very, very destructive. There's an interesting analogy to this in that people will most often stop for a red light in traffic. But a lot of people will go over the speed limit. What's the difference? Stopping for a red light is a qualitative thing. There is a qualitative difference between being stopped and not stopped. But speed is a quantitative thing. You know, well, I'm just going a little over the speed limit. It's not a qualitative difference. You know, the car is stopped or it's not stopped. Um, but speed's a, a quantitative thing. So talking and gossip is the same thing. You can be talking, and then the conversation very subtly shifts to gossip. And again, it's very easy to rationalize it. Hey, I'm only saying words, you know? What's harm? I didn't mean anything by it. Whereas an act is a qualitative thing where you can see that you're doing harm to a person. If you walk up to a person and punch him in the mouth, that is a very qualitative thing. If I just start to say 
a little subtle thing that might be a little bit of a slam against them, well, that seems like more of a quantitative thing. But speech, people don't look at it that way. They, they look at it, they don't see the difference and the harm that they're actually doing to someone. And then once they allow it and the floodgates open, it just can keep coming and coming and coming. You know, it's been said that uh, in sales, if you're a salesperson, once you make the sale and the person says they'll buy, you stop talking. You don't talk further because the only thing you'll likely do is talk the prospect out of the sale at that point. Once these agreed, you quit. So in verse 18, the one before this one, we were talking about anger. In this verse, we're dealing with talking. Uh, and where there's talking without a guide or a purpose, that's the first half of the verse. The second half is about that there is always a purpose. So the one who controls his lips is a thinker. In other words, he's only giving over the words that are rationally needed. And once he's done that, there's nothing more to say. So the thinker is defined, is defined by purpose. But if a person has no purpose and is just talking, then there's room for the unconscious to come in and uh, take you over the line and go too far and get you into difficulty. Okay? Does this make sense? Any questions? Okay. I'll take a no as a yes. Or I'll take no responses and yes. Okay. Um, we have about 15 minutes. We do have... Uh, let me, let's see if we can get through one more verse tonight. And this is uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 20. It reads, Pure silver is the tongue of the righteous, and the heart of the wicked is rare. Or it could be translated small or of little worth. Okay. Pure silver is the tongue of the righteous, and the heart of the wicked is, let's say, uh, small. So, what are the questions? What questions come to mind here? Pure silver is the tongue of the righteous, and the heart of the wicked is small. What kinds of questions come to us or do we need to ask in order to understand what this verse is telling us? Okay, Pamela, you're saying uh, heart of the wicked is small is the opposite of big-hearted. Okay. What is meant by pure silver? Very good question, Diane. Very good question. It says pure silver is the tongue of the righteous. What do we mean by pure silver? And why does it say it's the tongue of the righteous? I mean, obviously this is some kind of a metaphor because nobody has a silver tongue, literally. So what in the world does it mean? Great question. Okay, what else? Any others? Okay, speaking and thinking goodness toward others in the right way. Okay, that could be. 
And Ken, look like you're about to put something in here. Okay. So, a, a couple of other questions. Uh, is the scale used to measure? Okay. I assume you're talking about a scale used to measure pure silver? Alright. And Pamela, you wrote pouring oil on troubled waters. Okay. So, we've got some possibilities out here. Uh, I want to ask just a couple of other questions. Why does it say the heart of the wicked is rare or small? I mean, why use that word? I mean, that's kind of an odd, odd way to talk about the heart of the wicked. And why is it that the verse compares the tongue of the righteous with the heart of the wicked? Why not one or the other? Why didn't it talk about the tongue of the righteous and the tongue of the wicked, or the heart of the righteous and the heart of the wicked? Why that particular juxtaposition? And another question, and, and this uh, gets back to um, something that Diane brought up. Another question that I think can help us open up the meaning, at least of the first part, is this. Why did King Solomon say pure silver and not just silver? We'll assume that there are no words here by accident. And he used the term pure silver, not just silver. So, I'll suggest, and Pamela, you said speech reveals what is in the heart. Yes, that is true. Um, and Kathleen, I think you need to know about both in order to exercise free will. Okay. And Ken, you talk about the silver part, pure meaning higher value. Okay, good. Well, when you mine silver, there is no such thing as pure silver. Uh... It has to be refined before it can become pure silver. It has to be purified. And that process separates what's called the dross, or the impurities, from the pure silver until you are left with pure silver. Now, we could ask, well, why did King Solomon use silver and not gold in this metaphor? And it seems that you can find gold actually apparently out in the ground that is pure but apparently that is not true with silver silver apparently apparently is never found pure it always has to be refined in order to be purified now what would the dross be i'm going to suggest that the silver represents truth now when you find it it's mixed with dross so what does it mean that truth would be mixed with dross. And so I'll suggest to you that the dross is falsehood. Truth is that which can be proven or demonstrated. When you mine silver, you have silver mixed with dross. And how can you then have truth and falsehood mixed together? So I want to suggest that this is how this verse is dealing with how the mind works. It's not dealing with how much knowledge I have or how much I have to prove it, but how the mind actually works. The natural mind sees reality, but when it sees reality, there is a certain vagueness. There's some dross mixed in. 
yeah, we see reality and truth, but not completely clearly because our minds are not totally developed. And when the mind is not developed, uh, we'll see reality mixed with the dross because we don't have a completely clear picture. Now what the righteous have done is that they have separated the dross in their own minds so their mind works correctly. In other words, they have refined their ability to think, to make distinctions between one thing and another so that they can see things clearly. Now, the heart of the wicked is small means that it sees only a small amount of reality because there's too much dross mixed in with it. Now I should point out that uh, according to Rabbi Moskowitz um, in ancient times it seems like the term heart meant the mind. In modern times that when we talk about heart we usually mean emotions but in ancient times it seems like the heart meant the mind. So the righteous has removed the dross from his thinking, but the wicked haven't done that. So when the verse talks about small, uh, it, uh, in terms of, of the heart of the wicked or the mind of the wicked, is that the wicked sees certain truths, but it's mixed with a lot of dross and other ideas. So sometimes even if he sees a true idea, it kind of gets lost in all the impurities. So the wicked has some sense of reality, he sees some truth there, but since his mind isn't trained and the dross isn't removed, then he can't really think clearly. But if you've removed all the dross, then you can think clearly, and that's how you avoid mistakes. So this verse is really talking about how the mind works. And when we see a situation, we may still have some dross in our minds, which can cause us to make mistakes. Okay. Now, I want to take this a step further and give over an idea that Rabbi Moskowitz gave over, which he received from Rabbi Chait. Related to all this, which is, if you're thinking incorrectly and making mistakes, how do you go about undoing the mistakes? The ancient thinkers said that there was only, uh, that there was one way of purifying the mind, and that is through the study of logic. And there are books written by the sages about logic, and then there are other books about logic. So we have resources available to us. Um, and when they talk about logic, they're talking, uh, as I understand, about Aristotle's uh, logic and his approach to how the mind works. So what causes us to make mistakes? Well, one cause is that the mind isn't clear. There's still dross in it, as we discussed. The second cause is that, our, uh, that emotions affect our thinking process. This verse isn't talking about emotions that affect our thinking. This verse is talking about the fact that the mind makes mistakes when it first comes into existence and that you need logic to separate that. So you have to correct your knowledge to make sure you think correctly and you must also deal with the emotions so they don't affect your thinking process. Now in the second half of the verse, we're saying that the person who hasn't purified his mind will see a certain level of reality, very small, but it's mixed with all that draw, so it's not very clear. Now, we talk sometimes about perfection, and as far as a human being is concerned, uh, there's a certain definition as to what is the human being's perfection. 
think a minute about running a four-minute mile. Now, you might be capable of that, or even a bit faster, but there's a limit, and you'll never be as fast as certain animals are. So, insofar as thinking uh, correctly about perfection, we think about the mind thinking correctly and that it has no outside factors affecting its thoughts like emotions. And that's the highest level. It's a very rare person who can do this all the time, just as it's a rare person who can run a four-minute mile. But just because I can't run a four-minute mile doesn't mean that I can't run or jog or see how far I can go and enjoy myself and what I can do in the process. And it's the same with the world of ideas. We have this picture of the rare person who can always make correct decisions and who can completely eliminate any emotional interference. Now, even though there are very few people that can probably get there, I can visualize that as a picture of the direction that I'm going. Okay? Not that I have to get there, but that's the direction I'm going. That rare person defines the outer limit of the human being's capabilities. Just like the person who runs a four-minute mile defines the outer limit of a human's ability to run. And the important part about that is that it gives me direction. It helps me to know what I'm aiming for. Now, whether I can make that level or not, that's a different story. Uh, for that, I would have to realistically analyze my own abilities as to how far I can go and uh, what's realistic for me to do. Uh, if I can go to a certain level, I should go there. If I can go further, I should go further. Um, but we're talking here uh, about, about direction, not saying, well, I've failed if I can't get there. It's all about moving forward. So when we often when we talk about a human being insofar as perfection is concerned we have to take the the ultimate person and define him in order to know the direction but that isn't the goal okay it's just the direction in which i can go so i can get closer to god using these methods uh, because these are tools that can help me see reality more clearly and get me closer to god so it's about direction, but it's not about setting up that, that rare individual as the ultimate, and if I didn't make it, well, then I'm a failure. Uh, the idea is to go as far as I can go and be realistic with myself in the process and be on the path. And if I'm doing that, then I'm doing what needs to be done, and I can enjoy that and enjoy uh, the idea that I am doing uh, what you know, God wants me to be doing. And Pamela, you ask, it is about training. Yes, it is. It is about training the mind. And it's a constant process. This is something we work with our whole lives. This is not about arrival. <laughs> we, don't, we don't ever get there. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not about going up in an elevator and my goal is the 13th floor and I get there and wow, I'm done. Uh, the training of the mind is a constant process and, and an enjoyable one. Uh, you get to sit back and start applying these ideas to different situations that you face uh, and watch people in action and realize why things are done and see, gee, you know, uh, a year ago if I'd faced this situation I would have done X. 
But now looking at it, I realize that, that there would be some negative consequences to x because I analyzed the situation. So I'm going to do y instead, which is going to produce a better result. Um, and it becomes a, an a very enjoyable process uh, as we go through it. So pure silver is the tongue of the righteous, is that the righteous, the, the, uh, the outer limit, if you will, uh, the person that we're looking at has taken all the dross out of their thinking, so the words that come out are completely pure, where the heart of the wicked is going to see a little bit of reality, but has so much impurity in it that they will not be able to see uh, and think clearly, and therefore they will end up making mistakes. Okay, any questions about this verse? Or anything we've talked about this evening? Okay, good. Then we'll wrap up here. And again, for those uh, that came in after we started, we will not have class next week, August 30th, or the week after that, September 6th, which is Labor Day weekend. But we will start up class again on September the 13th. And I do thank you all for coming, and hope you all have a great week and a great uh, couple of weeks, rest of the summer through, uh, through Labor Day, and look forward to having you join us on, uh, uh, again on September 13th. Thanks so much.